We're going to be praying through Psalm 10 tonight, and so we want to study it together. Psalm 10 is a very interesting psalm because of how it starts out. And we could start out, because of those first two verses, asking ourselves the question, what do you do when heaven seems totally silent? You ever had that particular sense of things where in your relationship with God, He doesn't seem to care about what's happening in our world, or so it seems to you or to me? Yes, it appears as though He may be looking the other way from our plight or He's possibly distracted by other matters or maybe even seemingly he's unable or perhaps even unwilling to answer the loud cry of our hearts. Add into that misery even what might appear to be rapid and rabid injustice in the world where so many defenseless and helpless people are assaulted and attacked for what appears to be no good reason at all. You know, just within the last couple of days, a crazed terrorist gets into a truck and he plows into a group of Christmas shoppers and strollers in a country of our world and kills so many of them. Why is there such suffering and so much pain? Theologians actually call this dilemma that we're talking about theodicy. Theodicy. It's the idea of why is there evil in the world? What is the origin of such evil? Why does it seem to perpetuate itself around the globe? That's theodicy. And it's what theologians and even uh, Christians of a lesser sort have grappled with for many, many years, millennia. Why is there evil in the world? And the psalmist here in Psalm 10 expresses something very similarly, asking the God of Israel, Yahweh God, why he appears to be so distant from his people, especially when it seems that there is so much harm and devastation even to God's own people. Follow along with me in your Bibles as I read Psalm 10. Why, O Lord, do you stand afar off? Why do you hide yourself in times of trouble? In arrogance, the wicked hotly pursue the poor. Let them be caught in the schemes that they have devised. For the wicked boasts of the desires of his soul, and the one greedy for gain curses and renounces the Lord. In the pride of his face, the wicked does not seek him. All his thoughts are, there is no God. His ways prosper at all times. Your judgments are on high, out of his sight. As for all his foes, he puffs at them. He says in his heart, I shall not be moved. Throughout all generations, I shall not meet adversity. His mouth is 
filled with cursing and deceit and oppression. Under his tongue are mischief and iniquity. He sits in ambush in the villages. In hiding places, he murders the innocent. His eyes stealthily watch for the helpless. He lurks in ambush like a lion in his thicket. He lurks that he may seize the poor. He seizes the poor when he draws him into his net. The helpless are crushed, sink down, and fall by his might. He says in his heart, God is forgotten. He has hidden his face. He will never see it. Arise, O Lord. O God, lift up your hand. Forget not the afflicted. Why does the wicked renounce God and say in his heart, You will not call to account? But you do see, for you note mischief and vexation, that you may take it into your hands. To you the helpless commits himself. You have been the helper of the fatherless. Break the arm of the wicked and evildoer. Call his wickedness to account till you find none. The Lord is king forever and ever. The nations perish from his land. O Lord, you hear the desire of the afflicted. You will strengthen their heart. You will incline your ear to do justice to the fatherless and the oppressed so that man who is of the earth may strike terror no more. The psalmist, we might say as we do in our vernacular today, is in a world of hurt. He sees his fellow Israelites being destroyed, killed, murdered, robbed, hurt, And he wants to know why. And so he starts with what we might call the problem. The problem in verses 1 and 2. He says, Why, O Lord, do you stand afar off? Why do you hide yourself in times of trouble? In arrogance the wicked hotly pursue the poor. Let them be caught in the schemes that they have devised. You'll see a little later in this psalm that the psalmist isn't simply talking about general wickedness in the world, but specifically the wicked, hypocritical Israelites who were preying upon their fellow Israelites. And to the psalmist, this was unconscionable. How could an Israelite injure another brother, a fellow brother in the land, a fellow citizen, And the psalmist is asking Yahweh why he is allowing fellow brothers and sisters to hotly pursue each other. God seems to be so far away from the incredibly critical needs of his very own chosen people. That's that's the dilemma. That's why this psalm is here in this altar. And in verse 2, he says, why do you, the emphasis on you. Why do you hide yourself 
in times of trouble. In other words, of anybody, Lord, it shouldn't be you hiding away, standing afar off. Why? And by the way, it's not as though we're talking about the wicked, the arrogant, these hot pursuers as though they're agnostic or as though they're uh, atheists who are questioning the very existence of God. No, these are Israelites. These are people who are professing to know God. They're professing that God is real and that He is their creator. He is their Yahweh God. He's not talking about some scoffer who's laying into some supposed deity about the ignoring of his people. This is rather some kind of honest, bold question that a true believer, a true Israelite, this psalmist, is asking God why. Why? This is like the this is like the honest plaintive wail of the human heart. Why? God, why aren't you involved? And it's a matter of faith. It's not as though, again, this is an atheist, an agnostic person who's coming in from out of town and who's questioning everything about Israel's God, making them presume by what he does that God isn't anywhere around, he doesn't care. No, this is a fellow Israelite, and he's saying something like this, I don't understand why it seems that the wicked is able to do whatever they want, whatever they desire with such impunity. And as he says in verse 2, in arrogance the wicked hotly pursue the poor. Or you might translate it the lowly. Let them, that is the ones who are the hot pursuers, let them be caught in the schemes that they have made. In other words, Lord, if, if these are wicked, arrogant Israelites, then if you're the God of Israel, if you're the one who writes all wrongs, if you're the one who stands as a just God, why aren't you dealing with them? Why are you letting the innocent come down from being blessed? Why? He's only wanting this psalmist for God to do what's right, what's just, What's good? He's a man of faith. He's asking God for a reason. It's not as though he's dismissing that there is a God. He's actually asking the question in faith, but with doubt, but with uncertainty, with a question. But it is faith. And he's trying to grow in his faith. He's trying to understand what God is doing. What are you up to? What are you all about? Help me. Help me understand you. Help me understand the plan. Dale, Ralph Davis, on this very psalm, writes, Why do you, emphasis, you, this is not merely some intellectual quandary, but a devotional dilemma, which means it's a matter of faith. He does not understand Yahweh, but he is still dealing with Yahweh, and that is being faithful. He goes on to say, passages like Psalm 10 are meant to aggravate you, to anger you, to sadden you, to keep you from forgetting that your life is always at odds with the wicked. 
are not then these descriptions of the wicked having such success, trampling the helpless, meant to disturb and upset us and therefore drive us to prayer? Yes, I think it is. And this is why the psalmist is so upset about his fellow Israelites who are opposed to one another. And here's the reason that the psalmist goes on to say, I don't get it, but I am going to give you the anatomy of the wicked. Here's the predicament. If that was the problem in verses 1 and 2, here's the predicament in verses 3 to 11. He gives what we might call the anatomy of the wicked. This is a, this is a spelling out of exactly what's happening in Israel. And notice what he says in verses 3 and following. For the wicked boasts of the desire of his soul, and one greedy for gain curses and renounces the Lord. This is, this is what the wicked is all about. This is who they are. For instance, I just read verse 3. Uh, the wicked is boasting of his soulish desires, greedily seeking to gain at another's expense. He does this because the Bible says he curses or renounces or holds Yahweh in contempt. Right in the face of God, this wicked, arrogant Israelite, he shakes his fist in the face of God and says, I don't acknowledge you. In fact, I even curse you. And you are powerless to do anything about it. Verse 4, his pride, his arrogance so blinds him that he does not seek God, which sort of functionally eclipses any thought of the reality of God in his, in his thoughts, in his heart. Notice what the psalmist says in verse 4. In the pride of his face, the idea there is he's even showing it on his face. In the pride of his life, of his heart, right on his face, the wicked does not seek him, seek the Lord. He renounces him instead. He curses the Lord. All his thoughts are, there is no God. Now, we know that no one can rightly say that there is no God, right? Because Romans 1 says that everybody acknowledges that there is a God and that He exists because God has made it evident to everybody that there is a God. It's not as though he's truly saying there is no God as if there really isn't one. He knows deep down in his heart that there is a God, but he doesn't care about God. He doesn't think God's around. And he acts as though God doesn't exist, even though he knows truly that he does. Verse 5. His ways prosper at all times. Can you see this predicament in the psalmist's mind? His ways prosper at all times. Your judgments are on high, out of his sight. In other words, it seems to the psalmist that the wicked is is prospering forever, mainly because he assumes that God's judgments are completely out of his sight. They're totally irrelevant to him. And for all those who oppose him, it says at the end of verse 5, he puffs at them. Literally, he snorts at them. He just blows them off, we would say. He doesn't doesn't care even if there was a God, even if he believed that God was 
at some point, at some time, going to do something right now as far as the foes of this wicked man is concerned. He just blows them off. He's blowing God off. He's blowing them off. He's doing everything he can to just ignore the reality of who God is. Verse 6, according to verse 6, in his heart, he confidently asserts, I won't be moved. I won't be shaken. Nothing's going to happen to me. And for the rest of my life, that's what he means by throughout all generations, I shall not meet adversity. The adversity that I put others through will never touch me. I mean, this guy is, this guy's wicked and arrogant. He absolutely does not live as though God has anything to do with him. I won't be shaken. I'll not meet adversity. Verse 7, his his talk is even incredibly bad. Notice the the six terms that the psalmist uses right there in verse 7. His mouth is filled with cursing, so presumably he's cursing at God. We've already learned that. He has deceit in his mouth. He has oppression that he both speaks of and does toward others. It's under his tongue. What is that? Mischief and iniquity. Cursing, deceit, oppression, mischief, iniquity. Incredible. He's he's doing everything he can to make sure that he's the king and that there is no king above him. Verse 8. The wicked man sits and he waits to prey upon fellow Israelites in their villages. That's why we know that he's a fellow Israelite. This wicked man or wicked men, a whole passel of them. They sit in ambush in the villages. They they hide themselves in certain places so that they can murder the innocent. And his eyes stealthily watch for the helpless. You could translate that the unprotected. This is a this is a sad situation. He murders the innocent without just cause. His eyes watch in secret so that he can rob the unprotected. He lurks in the darkness like a lion so that he would ambush the poor and the needy. You know, seems to me that with the invention of the Internet, you and I don't have to travel too far as your right or left index finger scrolls and we'll see video after video after video of some robbery, some thievery, some shooting, and someone is just unsuspected, unprotected, and somebody does this same thing right in our villages, right in our homes. And this is the same. This is no different. He lurks in ambush like a lion in his thicket, like a lion in his lair. Verse 9, he lurks that he may seize the poor, the lowly. He seizes the poor when he draws him into his net. There are other passages in Scripture that also liken it to a game. It's like like sport to them. Proverbs chapter 1. Just like a sport. They, They do it because they love it. They love to see people 
clamoring for help, crying out for help. Verse 10, due to his strength, due to his might, the helpless are crushed. They sink down, and the Bible says they fall. I mean, no wonder the psalmist is so upset. No wonder he's, he's all about asking the question. In faith, not without it, in faith, but his, his faith, his understanding is, is vexed. He, he's, he's concerned. He, he doesn't understand. This is, a, this is a sad, sad situation. So, what does he do? What can he do? I mean, according to verse 11, this wicked man says, God has forgotten. He's hidden his face. He'll never see it. In other words, God's concerned about something else. This is, this is that theodicy question. What's, what's going on? Is, is God distracted? Does he, doesn't, doesn't he see the obvious? Doesn't, doesn't he hold a guy like this accountable? I mean, this is a huge predicament. But I want you to notice where it turns in this psalm. Look at verse 12. I mean, if, if he poses a problem in verses 1 and 2, and then if he shows the predicament like we've just seen in verses 3 to 11, notice how in verse 12 he turns the corner. He begins to reflect on these things. It may be even something like this. He begins to recite to himself who he knows God to be. Maybe from other psalms that he's aware of. If this is David, and we presume that it probably is, maybe he's begun to rehearse in his mind, wait a minute, it may appear that the wicked, arrogant man hotly pursues which is true enough, but he's not going to be able to do it forever. And he begins to turn, and here's what he says, beginning in verse 12. Arise, O Lord, O God, lift up your hand. Forget not the afflicted or the suffering. He begins that, that turn in his own mind, and says, God is watching. God knows. And he asks God to arise. It may be that the psalmist himself is standing up. And he's saying, Lord, you arise. You stand. Oh, God. Oh, covenant-keeping God. Don't forget the afflicted, the, the downtrodden. I plead with you to help me understand why the wicked renounce you and says in his heart that you will not hold him accountable. Arise, O Lord. That, this is his plea. This is his prayerful plea. You know, when you and I are in similar circumstances, whether it's someone that we love or someone that we know or in our own community, can you imagine if you and I had been living in San Bernardino when the terrorists went there and into that building and shot many, many people, if we had been around that situation, knew some of those people, worked in that office, been involved as a loved one with someone who you now have heard from the police 
is dead, killed by a radical terrorists, rad radical terrorist. Arise, O Lord. I mean, right in the, the midst of the plea, he says, I need you. I need you. Your people need you. Don't forget the afflicted. Why, according to verse 13, does the wicked renounce God and say in his heart, you will not call to account? Hold him accountable. He doesn't think you're going to do it. I appeal to you, Yahweh. He doesn't think you see anything. You see that back in verse 11? God has forgotten. He has hidden his face. He will never see it. He will never see what I'm doing. I'll not be shaken. I'll not be moved. But notice what the psalmist says in verse 14. But you do see. You do see. And you note his mischief, his trouble. He's a troublemaker to the max. And you see it. You note it. And you see the aggravation, the vexation on the part of your people. And you're going to take it into your hands, he says. To do what? To help the helpless. To you, the helpless commits himself. You have been the helper of the fathers. And he appeals to God's character, right? He says, I know that's who you are. I know that's your character. I know that you are going to be the God who rights the wrongs. And you know how he knows this? It has been supposed, and probably on some good evidence, that Psalm 9 and 10 were once together, only separated when it came to this particular arrangement in the full Psalter. And you know how that psalmist knows that God will do such a thing? Look at Psalm 9. If this was, and I think there's good evidence that it was, one psalm being a psalm of David according to the superscription right underneath Psalm 9, which, by the way, is verse 1 in the Hebrew text. Verse 1, a psalm of David to the choir master. And here's what he says. I will give thanks to the Lord with my whole heart. This is the same psalmist. David, the sweet singer of Israel. I will recount all of your wonderful deeds. I will be glad and exult in you. I will rejoice in you. I will sing praise to your name, O Most High. Why? Why, David? Verse 3, when my enemies turn back, they stumble and perish before your presence. For you have maintained my just cause. You have sat on the throne giving righteous judgment. And then he goes through the rest of this psalm, exulting in God, praising God, thanking God. You have rebuked the nations, verse 5. You have made the wicked perish. You have blotted out their name forever and ever. The enemy came to an end in everlasting ruins. Their cities you rooted out. The very memory of them have, have, has perished. The Lord sits enthroned forever. He has established His throne for justice and He judges the world with righteousness. He judges the peoples with uprightness. David is rehearsing who God is and what he knows God to be. Same man, 
same king of Israel, same psalm, separated at some point later. This is how he rehearses. This is what he says. This is what he reminds himself of who God is. The Lord, verse 9, is a stronghold for the oppressed, a stronghold in times of trouble. And I know you're like me. You say, wait a minute, how could the guy who penned Psalm 9 say what he says in Psalm 10? Or you might be saying, maybe these were reversed, and maybe Psalm 10 was originally Psalm 9, and he's saying, why, God, why are you so far off? Why are you so distant? Why aren't you dealing with all of these robbers and thieves and murderers and the arrogant and the wicked? And then Psalm 9. No, sometimes sometimes you rehearse all of these things that you know God to be, and then you see the violence. And then you ask the question. And that's apparently the way it is here. But he knows the truth. He knows the Lord is a stronghold for the oppressed, a stronghold in times of trouble. And notice what he says in Psalm 9:10, and those who know your name put their trust in you. No matter your circumstances, no matter what's going on, no matter those who do evil against you, for you, O Lord, have not forsaken those who seek you. I mean, just a week ago Sunday, came out of our house to go to church just like every Sunday. And two of our cars Windows smashed, things stolen. And you you ask the question, why, Lord? I'm the preacher. Why? I got to go to church. I don't need to deal with this right now. Oh, Lord, you have not forsaken those who seek you. Those who know your name put their trust in you. And then he puts it in the matter of a song. Verse 11, sing praises to the Lord who sits enthroned in Zion. Tell among the peoples his deeds for he who avenges blood is mindful of them. He does not forget the cry of the afflicted. And I can hear some of the afflicted say, he forgot mine. He forgot mine. That's why verse 13 is there. Be gracious to me, O Lord. See my affliction from those who hate me. O you who lift me up from the gates of death, that I may recount all your praises, that in the gates of the daughter of Zion I may rejoice in your salvation, your deliverance. And what does he say about the nations? Verse 15, the nations have sunk in the pit that they made. Doesn't that sound a lot like Psalm 10 too? In arrogance, the wicked hotly pursue the poor. Let them be caught in the schemes that they have devised. And they will. That's his point. They will. Inevitably, they will. The Lord, verse 16 of Psalm 9, has made himself known. He has executed judgment. The wicked are snared in the work of their own hands. Then he gives a couple of musical terms. Higayan, selah. It may mean stop, meditate, Think, pause. Verse 17, The wicked shall return to Sheol, all the nations that forget God. For the needy shall not always be forgotten. It may look like that for a season. It may seem as though they have been. And the hope of the poor shall not perish forever. And he says what he later says here in Psalm 10, Arise, O Lord. 
Let not man prevail. Let the nations be judged before you. Put them in fear, O Lord. Let the nations know they are but men. And that's exactly what he says here at the end of Psalm 10. Verse 15. Break the arm of the wicked and evildoer. Call his wickedness to account till you find none. Verse 15, and in essence, representative is verse 15 of the psalm as a whole. And this is what we call a psalm of imprecation. An imprecatory psalm. And I know that there are some people who read a verse like verse 15, break the arm of the wicked and evildoer, call his wickedness to account till you'll find none, run him through with the sword. And somebody's going to say, that is wretched. How can we pray that to the Lord? You probably would if a wicked man were pursuing you. You probably would. I know I would. Lord, stop him. Arise. Make him quit. Judge him. He's wicked. He's he's an evildoer. He thinks no one will hold his wickedness to account. Deal with him entirely. Verse 16. Yahweh, the Lord. Capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. Yahweh. He is king forever and ever. The nations perish from his land. You say, who is this? Who is this Lord? Well, look over at Revelation. Revelation chapter 11. Here's who he is. This is the last book in our Bibles. And if there's ever a question from anybody about what appears to be a momentary loss, uh, a losing of the battle, potentially even the losing of the war. Revelation chapter 11 identifies who this king is, who this Lord is. Verse 15, Then the seventh angel blew his trumpet, and there were loud voices in heaven saying, Revelation eleven fifteen, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. That might actually be a quote from Psalm 10, 16. The Lord is king forever and ever. The nations perish from whose land? His land. God owns it. He'll take care of it. He'll do it in his time and in his way and according to his purposes, even if we can't always see it ourselves. Verse 17, here's his plea, here's his prayer. O Lord, O Yahweh, you hear the desire of the afflicted. You will strengthen their heart. You will incline your ear. That's a prayer term. You will incline your ear. I'm asking you to. I'm pleading with you to do such a thing. And now he's got great confidence. Now his faith is being buoyed. Now he's being matured in his understanding. You hear the desire of the afflicted. You will strengthen their heart. You will incline your ear to do what? Verse 18. To do justice to the fatherless, that's the orphan, and the oppressed, that's the crushed, so that man, that wicked man, that arrogant man who is of the earth, that earthy man, may strike terror no more. 
This is, this is no scoffer. This is no doubter. This is no atheist. This is no agnostic. This is King David. He knows his God. He knows who God is. And he needs to have his attitude, his perspective, his focus turned, right? Now, I don't suspect there's anybody here tonight who would need to say the same thing at times? Of course. Of course we do. Every one of us. We need our perspective challenged, right? Especially when we see so much of what we see in our world. We need our focus changed. We need our perspective strengthened. And that's what he says. Notice, you hear. You will strengthen. You will incline. You will do justice. And there won't be anybody who hurts God's people anymore. You say, when will that come? When the Lord God and His Christ vanquish all their foes in the millennial kingdom, that 1,000-year reign of the Messiah, and then He will usher us into an eternal future so that there will be no more sorrow, no more tears, Nothing of the wicked, nothing of the arrogant, and God will be king forever and ever. Isn't that your hope? Let's pray. Father, this is our hope. This is what we want, even at times when we don't see what we want happening. We do need our perspective enlightened, changed. We need our attitudes adjusted. It's not completely apart from reality that the psalmist says, Oh Lord, why do you stand afar off? Why do you hide yourself in times of trouble? But we don't stay there. We don't forever get stuck with the wrong ideas. We have ourselves and our attitudes changed. And we should. We must. No matter how bad things get. No matter what happens to us or to those we love. Yahweh, you do hear the desire of the afflicted. Lord Jesus Christ, you will strengthen the hearts of those who desperately need it. Holy Spirit, you will incline your ear to do justice in your time, within your plan, according to your will. And there will be no one who can do anything about it. And what you do, you do righteously and in a holy way. And you do it with perfection and with a resolute will. May we honor you by adjusting our perspective, confessing where we need to 
our lack of faith and challenging our own lives when we see evil being done across the land. Let us not forget that you will arise and you will act and that you do see and you will take things, matters, into your own hands. Father, thank you for a psalm like this. It does anger us. It does challenge us. It does provoke us. We do need that at times. And may we speak to you reverently and with the anticipation that you will act, but only according to your immutable character and will for your glory. Because you are the King who reigns forever and ever. In Jesus' name.